just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Who is the year-to-date fantasy most valuable hitter? Who's the pitcher most likely to collapse in the rest of the season? How about the hitter most likely to rebound? I'll ask Todd Zola and Ray Murphy those questions and a whole lot more next on a special roundtable edition of Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, July the 19th. It's show number 28 of the 2022 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another special All-Star Break Roundtable Edition for you. I'll be joined by Todd Zola from Rotowire, ESPN, Masters Ball, and SiriusXM, and by Ray Murphy, co-general manager and columnist at BaseballHQ.com. In part one of this edition, we'll talk about the big stories in baseball and fantasy baseball. In part two, our least valuable fantasy players and our candidates for second half collapse. And in part three, our second half rebounds and our fantasy rookie of the year to date, our fantasy Cy Young, and our most valuable hitter. It's our special All-Star Break Fantasy Roundtable Edition. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? We're in the break and we're going to talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this All-Star Roundtable Edition, it's part one with Todd Zola from Rotowire, ESPN, Masters Ball, and SiriusXM, and Ray Murphy from BaseballHQ.com. Ray, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Happy All-Star break, Petey. So far, so good, uh, and uh, really enjoyed the Home Run Derby last night. We'll maybe talk briefly about that. And from Masters Ball, ESPN, Rotowire, Sirius XM, and podcasts from one end of the nation to the other, Todd Zola. Todd, hello. I'm doing well. How you folks doing? Doing fine. Thank you. And before we get started, uh, as I said, uh, the Home Run Derby last night was uh, a lot more fun than I thought it was. I don't usually watch it, but I kind of got caught up in it. What did you guys think, Ray? Yeah, it's always a good take. It's um, it's funny. I was a little late coming to it, and uh, you know, just wrapping up dinner and doing dishes and stuff. And I had not put it on in time for the the first pit, the first pitch, as it were. And then I got a text from a friend who was like, "Did you see they almost lit Ronald Acuna on fire with the pyrotechnics?" And then I was like, "Well, now I got to go turn it on." So <laughs> you know, from there it was a re- it was a really good take. So uh, it, it was an enjoyable couple hours. Weirdest IL stint so. ever. <laughs> <laughs> had they lit him on fire you know if you didn't get there right on time did you get to the did, did you get to see julio rodriguez in the first round no i i came in like uh what did he hit 37 in the first round or something i think i came in on like 19 or 20 so I, he was uh he was already on fire by the time i got there as was ronald acuna almost uh uh <laughs> yeah it was 32 actually see what I did that? <laughs> yeah todd what do you think no, i enjoyed it i was flipping around to some other things just to uh, but no, yeah, it was fun. I am um, going to be writing a little bit about it. So I had to watch most of, you know, Rodriguez was just silly. I, I didn't really mention in the broadcast, but his pitcher, I mean, just stood still and threw the ball exactly where he wanted it. No striding, no showing the ball. I'm, I'm lifting my hand like you guys can see me. Ray can see me. I can um, see you. Yeah, but uh, oh, oh well, I, I can't. I can't see you anyway. Yes, I just got a kick out of uh, the different. I mean, I, that's how goofy I am. I'm, I'm focusing on the pitchers because I've seen enough. Of the, you know, I'm trying to just try to think of something different to to write about or, or to mention. So yeah, their pitcher Rodriguez's pitchers kind of stood flat footed and threw the ball exactly where they want. And he was throwing some two seam sinkers for a while too. Rodriguez gave him a little bit of a glare, and suddenly he started hitting homers. Yeah, I don't know if you were watching the. Uh the main ESPN feed, which I assume was uh, Chris Berman calling out random towns in California. But, um, you know, I, I actually had the StatCast one on and they were, fl- you know, I, I, 
like Utah, my my attention was kind of coming and going on the screen, so I didn't always see it. But there were flashing ups, you know, some stats like, you know, how many you know how many pitches were getting thrown and what percentage the guys were hitting out. And I think Rodriguez was benefiting from his pitcher putting him in the same spot every time. Plus, you know, he's young, and I, you know, these young kids get tired less quickly than you and I do. So, uh, you know, there was uh, those were a couple of things working in his favor for sure. Not that. He isn't a prolific power hitter in his own right. Up here in Canada, we had to watch it on, uh, I think, Sportsnet, which is the Major League Baseball's main provider here. And there was no access to the second ESPN feed, which I was hoping we would have because I thought it would be more interesting. I can tell you that the main ESPN feed did not feature Chris Berman. Uh, It was just uh, uh, Perez and a couple of other guys, Carl Ravitch. And I thought the coverage was kind of odd because about half the time, I had no idea where the ball was. It was like they just showed the guy swinging yeah. and hitting the ball, and the ball would go up, and then they showed him from the same angle, from the center field camera, just doing it again and again. And, and oh, they would cut away when it might be a home run, and sometimes it was and sometimes it wasn't. But because of the sun beating down out there, once it got into the sunlight, you couldn't see the ball anyway. It was kind of like watching the uh, British Open golf tournament the other day. You, you, he hits the ball and everybody's going, well, we can't see it, but it's somewhere down there on the right, you know. So from yeah, that point the of view, it's the Statcast did a split screen, but I can't say it was all that much better for that purpose. Because I mean, you'd see the ball, and they even used the the tracer on it, but you couldn't always tell whether it was going to get out until they showed you a fan catching it in the thirty second row, right? Um, so it's just a, uh, you know, I, I think you're exactly right that the uh, the bright sun was really kind of limiting there. Yeah. I think a couple of Rodriguez's balls that didn't leave the yard. He's fast enough. That he couldn't have gotten it. He could have gotten it inside the park or on a couple of those. Yeah, they should have given him credit for an inside the park home run derby home run. That would have been hilarious. And maybe he'd have to beat the the what the six hundred kids or so out there in the outfield. Yeah, around oh, yeah. There's like, yeah, there's like everybody's in the platoon side, the, the, the strong platoon field. There's like two people on the other side. <laughs> so a couple. Of, I mean, Soto was going the other way. He so was. Some of them are getting some balls. Yeah, I'm pretty sure a couple of those guys could have outrun the 50-man relay of 12-year-olds to try to get the ball in from the warning track. <laughs> and and uh, sometimes wrestling over the ball themselves in the outfield. Oh, yeah, that, don't forget that. Totally. <laughs> it was, that part of it was fun. I actually also saw two guys just come within inches of crashing together in a sort of major league-style outfield collision, but they veered off at the last time, and the ball fell between them because they both gave up on it because they didn't want to bonk heads, I guess. It was pretty hilarious. The whole thing was a lot of fun. I've, I, like I said, I don't watch it as a regular thing because I, it, I just find it tedious after a while, but I thought this one was pretty good. And a part of that was because of the personalities involved. Soto's such a big boisterous sort of guy and Rodriguez is, has a lot of confidence, shall we say, for a guy 21. Yeah, I was concerned though. Um, Soto got a couple of hugs and I was afraid that like Heyman and Nightingale were going to say he got traded. <laughs> Well, I guess it was a possibility. They were talking about it on the main ESPN feed, I know, and and whether he was going to get traded and stuff like that, which kind of interfered with what was going on. But gosh, he sure seems popular with the other players, especially the other Dominican players. And, and uh, of course, it was kind of um, emotional to watch how, how excited they all were to see Albert Pujols. And he, he went a little bit uh, into the tournament. He won his first round match and, and went to overtime on the second and, Gosh, all those players, it was like when they hauled Ted Williams out at Fenway Park at the All-Star Game back in the day. Yeah, that was pretty cool. Let's get started with our roundtable content. Uh, We'll start with the year's most important stories. Let's start with the biggest story in real baseball to date. And Ray Murphy, you got the honor. You know, maybe I'm the person with the long memory or you know my scars heal slowly. But to me, the baseball story of the year is that we're here. Right. And that, you know, I, I personally haven't completely forgotten the 99 day to block out. Um, and it, into as recently as, you know, the eighth or ninth of March, we, you know, were, we had doubts that we'd see baseball at all before, you know, maybe Memorial day. And, you know, this has been, you know, other than starting a couple of days late, it's been an entirely normal first half. And, you know, even well, uh, the opener, well, you know, even the periodic COVID interruptions have been less than last year and a little more manageable. And sure, the product on the field is kind of screwy, and we can—I'm sure—we'll get into that a little bit later. But 
I enjoyed the crap out of this first half, and I think that's my story. <laughs> Todd, what do you think? Well, first, I'll, I'll agree with Ray. I mean, I, that was I, that, I, that, that was on my list, but I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna throw a bit of a curve, and I think the story is the New York Yankees. I mean, some are gonna say the Orioles or the Mariners or the the Yankees, and I know they're you know the, the evil empire, but what Cashman did in the offseason, taking you know a bunch of you know people that are in a batting order, ensuring up that defense up the middle. I don't know that he's going to – he's not going to win executive of the year, but he should. Maybe he will. I don't know. Uh, I just – having seen a, too, too much of the Yankees, if you will, uh, that, that it's just a juggernaut. They don't have a weakness, and and I, I, I think they need deserve credit. They're not going to get the credit because they're the Yankees, but they did it in a baseball way. They By getting Isaiah Kiner-Falefa, or IKF as they call him, at shortstop, moving t- towards over to second, plus, plus defense at second – they, they're coming to get me. Um, if you can hear the <laughs> sirens, and then uh, center field isn't the strongest, but the catcher, which they got by accident, is the best defensive catcher in the league. I don't know. I just think what the Yankees did in the offseason, they're not going to get the credit for taking a bunch of pieces in a lineup and turning it into a, a gelled team. It's funny because I think th- you know, I, I attribute so much more of the Yankees' success relative to, you know, we all knew they were going to be good, right? But I, to me, what sets, really sets them apart is their pitching. And I guess that's how you get to be 62 and 24 or whatever it is. is just, you just wax poetic about their lineup and defense for two minutes. And I'm like, well, well but what about the pitching staff? That's so fantastic too, right? Um, and, you know, if I go down the list of their rotation, they're not particularly out pitching their metrics or anything. They're just that good. And they have a defense behind them and they have a huge lineup behind them. The bullpen is stacked even with Chapman struggling. That's like the one thing that's gone wrong for the team yeah. for that team this year. They look – you know, they, they look unstop, unstoppable in all aspects of the game. And if you think I'm trying to jinx them, well, no comment. <laughs> you might say that uh, losing Chapman was a blessing in disguise because it allowed them to put Clay Holmes into that role. And all he's done has been really fantastic. And I know that had Chapman pitched better, then it would have been even stronger because Holmes would have been the setup guy, Chapman closing games. They might well have been invincible. So I like the Yankees story. I also like the uh, Mariners story. I like the Orioles story a lot this year because all of a sudden, hey, they look okay. They look pretty good. I think it's the wheels are going to come off because uh, they're the opposite of the Yankees in that they don't have pitching, and eventually I think that's going to show up. And I heard somewhere or read somewhere that during the 10 or 11 straight games that they won, they were playing all the league's weak sisters, basically. And and they're good enough to beat the bad teams. But uh, since they hit Tampa, you know, that kind of slowed their roll a bit. And I think all of that stuff is interesting. But I'm going to go for my story. Uh, the continuing increase in the number of pitchers being used across MLB, just five years ago, through about the same number of games, we had 496 pitchers with at least 10 innings. This year, there's like 50 more, 544, something like that. 100 more pitchers have pitched this year than in 217 at all. 48 more have pitched more than 10 innings. 22 fewer have pitched more than 100 innings. And uh, 12 more pitchers have pitched 90 to 100 innings. So the amount of innings being thrown by the top guys is declining. The amount of innings being thrown by the middle guys seems to be increasing. And there are 15 fewer full-time starting pitchers this year than in 2017. And I define that by saying all of their games were starts. So I think uh, this is something that's going to continue and it's going to have real ramifications for fantasy baseball, especially for you projections guys, trying to figure out where these different sort of approaches to pitching are going to uh, affect pitcher outcomes. Uh, it's all been really interesting to me, and I think it's going to be uh, pretty interesting to watch in the future. Uh, let's move on to the biggest fantasy baseball story of the year to date. The real game side of things is one thing, but we know fantasy and reality don't always run in parallel. So, Todd, what do you think? The biggest fantasy baseball story of the year. All right, um, seven names. Jorge Lopez, Ryan Helsley, Clay Holmes, Edwin Diaz, Emmanuel Classe, Kenley Jansen, and Daniel Bard. Put them in a hat, mix them up, but those are pretty much your top seven closers. Um, it just, that I mean, it has the repercussions on how we manage teams, how we're making trades, how we're going to draft. Um, 
whether it changes people's strategies or not, I don't know. But I just thinking about some of the fantasy implications of what's gone on, doing some numbers last night, I just was shaking my head. And I'm not taking a victory lap for saying waiting on closers, you know, anything along the line. Because I don't have, you know, those, I don't see Scott and Joe Barlow in that list. I don't see David Bednar or Andrew Kittredge. So, the, you know, the guys I was banking on aren't there. Uh, I just, I think, you know, really Lopez, the top close, depending on how one does things. Um, and I just, I think that that's going to, you know, once again, we'll talk in the off season. How do we approach saves? I think that is a, a real interesting point because the, the thing about the closers that you named is in a lot of cases, they would have not been drafted and they, there was no reason to draft them going into the actual draft season. I mean, did anybody draft Jorge Lopez? Well, to make it, no, but we still have 65 to 70 games and we saw what can happen in two games with Josh Hader. So there's not, this isn't to say that these seven names will be the seven at the end. Uh, Matter of fact, you know, I think that they won't be obviously, duh. Um, podcast of the years, Ola says they won't be. Um, but no, so the point, I mean, uh, but but at least to date. Um, and, and, you know, then you have to, you know, have the, which means more saves or the ratios. It depends on the, the scoring and where your team is, um, you know, because a lot of these numbers bank in some solid ratios, which, as we know, are the, the most um, vulnerable stat of all the, you know, for relievers especially. So I don't know. I just, I still, even even so, even knowing all these caveats, and in, 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 in this kind of speaks to a little bit about what he was saying and was joking about is kind of a it's kind of a normal year. So I don't know what I didn't I had a trouble thinking what the biggest fantasy story was. I don't think it's a particularly big story, but I did notice that stolen bases are up from five years ago, but their concentration is down slightly. There's 13 guys who have 15 stolen bases back in uh, 2017. This year there's 10, so we're seeing a little bit uh, a little bit of a decline at the top. But there's about equal numbers who have more than five, and 24 this year, more than in 2017, have at least one stolen base but less than five. So the stolen bases are being spread out as their number grows a little bit. I just don't know if it's an actionable thing to think about when we go into next year's drafts. Can you cobble together enough four stolen base guys across a roster to be competitive? That'd be 56 if you got 14 guys with four each. I don't know if that's going to offset somebody who's got Jorge Mateo and and is banging out, uh, you know, 40 stolen bases for the year. I mean, he's going to, you're going to lose, but is that, is 46 or 50 enough if you just cobbled them together? I don't know. I think it's going to be interesting next season's preseason when we start talking about what are you going to do about stolen bases? Ray, what do you think? I think mine is sort of a macro extrapolation from yours, PD, and you talk about the stolen bases, and I think that in some sense is a symptom of the changing run environment. And by run environment, I mean everything from the ball to the humidors and whatever it is that is changing the, you know, the run scoring league wide this year, Uh, you know, MLB got some of what they wanted in that the strikeout rate is a little bit down this year, but run scoring is down even further because home runs are down. And, you know, there've been a you know number of different competing studies that at different times of year, you know, various points in the first half that have said, you know, maybe it was the weather early on, or maybe it was the shortened spring training, but then you get into, you know, we have humidors in all 30 parks instead of just 10 last year. And how much of that, how much of the changes in the other 20 ballparks that will, will last all summer, things started looking like they were getting better. And then they got a little bit worse right before the all-star break. So, you know, with run scoring down and home runs down, we're breaking the sort of three true outcome model a little bit from prior years. So that leads to a little bit more opportunity to manufacture runs, which I think dovetails into that stolen base conversation that you were just having. Now, the big question about all of this is how much of this is by design? How much of this is just, you know, MLB yanking on, puppet strings versus MLB not having a clue what they're doing. And, you know, is any of this going to carry forward? Are they going to change the ball again next week after the break? Are they going to re- are they going to manufacture it the same next year? Nobody knows. So, you know, is any of this actionable? 
it's like everything we do in terms of projection and uh, you, you know trying to anticipate what the game is going to look like year to year is in some sense built on quicksand. And I don't know how you draw any firm conclusions in this environment because the only constant is change. If speaking of that, Ray, I mean, you know that there's going to be a balanced schedule next year, right? We may yep. be, we may be legisla- legislating the shift next year. Yep. So, and that's I mean, just the stuff we know about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Pitch clock. So, you know, will will runs need to be manufactured a little more because of the sh- shift or not? Or when what's really what's weird now is strikeouts are, are ticking back up. Uh, home runs are kind of staying the same, and runs are heading down. So this year, if you if you compare it to previous seasons trends, it's just it's not trending the way other seasons have. And again, the reason being we don't know. Uh, you know, we we don't know, but we just know that strikeouts are back up again. For a while, the narrative was okay. The strike homers are down, batters are spraying the ball around, but that lasted about two weeks, and now they're, yep. they're striking out again. So it's uh yeah. So um I, I pity the fools that have to do projections. Oh wait, never mind. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's going to be a difficult chore, I think, next year to, for you guys to figure out what's going on. Maybe spring training will be a bit of a clue for you, but uh, I don't envy you your job. We get a WBC to screw with spring training next year, too. So just you know, one, this, one more grenade in the path. <laughs> doesn't this all speak towards the, you know, the building of a team as opposed to marrying to projections, though? I mean, totally. sure, we need a foundation but more than ever, it's the construction and it's the up and downside. You know, it's the risks, it's the rewards, it's the stability in places as well. Um, you know, it's it's not, I can't, you know, it's against the brand to say, don't use my projections because I don't know what the hell I'm doing. You know, but th- it, it speaks more towards that sort of a, of a lineup build. And, 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 you know, all right, it's a basis, but don't get married to that number. Yeah, 100% right. I think, you know, building stability where you can and leaving room for error and both room for growth so that you could benefit from whatever commodity is available and thriving in season based on the run environment that where, you know, the, the game being played that you don't know about is a big part of the challenge. And man, I hate to draw this comparison, but because it, I, I, I sort of despise everything about it, but it's a little more, you'll, you'll know more about this, Todd, than I think even I do, but it's a little more like of a fantasy football kind of mindset, isn't it? Like you start with a team and then by the end of the season, you know, a lot has changed, you know, obviously the injuries are a huge factor there, but you end up going into the, 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 the playoff part of the season with something that you probably didn't even anticipate 12 or 13 weeks ago. Right. And we're, we're drifting a little bit in that direction. We, we probably should have always been, and I think that's why some people are just good at drafting, have done, you know, have more success than yeah. others. Um, but I think, I think now you can make that comparison without getting, you know, lightning being thrown at you by the, by the stats nerds. I think that's an excellent point. And it seems just in my own experience that drafting is becoming less and less important, still very important, but less and less important than being really active in managing your roster in season, making the right moves, making the right decisions to make moves or not to make moves. All of that kind of stuff is playing an increasingly important role. And so brace yourselves if you want to be competitive, especially in NFBC type leagues or big overall contests. There's lots of players out there who are going to be doing the work and you better be prepared to do it too if you want to remain competitive. Uh, Okay, guys, now that the heavy thinking is over, let's take a break, uh, rehydrate, and get ready to talk about the worst of the first half. Todd Zola writes for Rotowire, ESPN, and Masters Ball and appears regularly on SiriusXM. Ray Murphy writes for BaseballHQ.com and is co-general manager of the site. Todd and Ray will be back in just a second, but right now it's time to let you know about an item of great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In Playing Time Tomorrow, analyst Dan Marcus identifies second-half breakout candidates in the National League Central and the National League West, including Nelson Velasquez of the Cubs and Corbin Martin in Arizona. 
Playing Time Tomorrow, just one of the great regular features available all the time when you're a member of the team at BaseballHQ.com. He's sitting on 7-14. Here's the pitch by Downing. Swinging. There's a drive into left center field. That ball is going to be out of here. It's gone. It's 7-15. There's a new home run champion of all time, and it's Henry Aaron. The fireworks are going. Henry Aaron is coming around third. His teammates are at home plate. And listen to this crowd. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt here. Time for part two of our all-star roundtable edition with our guests Ray Murphy from BaseballHQ.com and Todd Zola from Rotowire and ESPN Masters Ball and SiriusXM and podcasts. And guys, let's turn to the worst of the first half, and I'll start with our least valuable fantasy players. My pick for the least valuable hitter is Javier Baez of Detroit. Uh, fantasy managers spent about $23 on average for Baez, and he's returned about $2, 213, nine home runs, 65 runs and RBIs combined, and just three stolen bases. All of the things that people expected for value from Javier Baez, they haven't got. And uh, other than Joey Gallo, he's the only one who hasn't spent time on the IL among guys of his price who haven't delivered. I left the injured guys out of this category uh, I wonder if Baez presents a buy-low opportunity. His rest-of-season projections are a lot rosier than the dandelion he sprouted uh, year-to-date. But it seems like you'd have to be pretty desperate, guys, to find a diamond in the slough if the asking price is anything significant at all. Uh, Ray, who's your least valuable hitter? Yeah, Baez was going to be mine, too. Uh, I, I thought this was pretty far and away the easiest non-injury call, as you say, PD, uh, to, to jump on the, is he a buy low? You know, there were some signs a couple of weeks ago that he was coming to life. I, I think there was a stance change too, when the, they were talking about when the, uh, Todd, you might remember when the Red Sox went through Detroit a couple of weeks ago, he was, uh, that was right around when he was warming up and they said they had, uh, he had changed something with his front foot or something like that. And it seemed to be correlating with that, but then he seemed to cool off again a little bit before the break. Uh, in terms of a buy low, I think in general, yes, you have to consider him a buy low because there's such a pedigree there. There's not an injury that we know of. And I'm reminded that even really good players can have really bad half seasons. I'm, was it 2019 or 2018 where Jose Ramirez spent a half, a full half season in the tank before he came out of it? Uh, I think. You know, I'm not predicting that for Baez, but I think it's absolutely within the range of outcomes for the second half. And he can't, you know, I, I definitely think he's unlikely to stay this bad. When it comes to whether to acquire him, I think your team context is all important. If you're at the top of your standings, I don't think you can afford the risk. But if you're in the middle or down towards the bottom, I think it's a kind of chance you almost have to take if it presents itself. Uh, Todd, who's your least valuable hitter? Uh, so I didn't, I didn't use the numbers and, you know, formulas, but I, and going back to a couple of things we've already talked about stolen bases and roster construct, if you went the high power mile straw route, I, uh, you're not doing well. Uh, so I'm going to put straw as the least valuable hitter. You, you knew you were going to take a hit on some of the counting stats. You thought you'd get a reasonable average. You're not, your counting stats are down because he's hitting ninth and just not hitting. So I think just the damage that Miles Straw has done to a team that needed him and only him to be competitive in steals is just, is, you know, even, you know, I'll pick up John Birdie or whatever. Uh, I, I think that the, you know, the roster, con, you know, and this isn't to say it was a wrong decision. Um, you know, you, there's going to be someone that we'll talk about in that vein next year. And sometimes they work out, sometimes they don't. But, um, you know, there lots of teams aren't winning, and it's not just because they drafted Miles Straw. But I think that's a – for those that did, it's been a rough year. And, of course, they could have drafted Jorge Mateo along the same yeah. lines, and, and they would have done well. I mean, he's killing your average, but he's hitting a few home yeah. runs, he's scoring some runs, and he's stealing a ton of bases. So, ten, I mean – Ten rounds later. 
Yeah, know? exactly. The The model works if you pick the right guy, I guess is what it boils down to. And no, absolutely. That's, oh, the, sure. that's the whole game really, isn't it? Uh, let's turn to our least valuable pitcher of the year so far. And we'll start with Ray Murphy. Oh, I think I'm going to go. I've got, I, I prepared one in each league, but uh, let me start by throwing out Trevor Rogers, who is, uh, you know, something of a disaster uh, for the Marlins and somebody who we really thought was going to look sharp uh, all season long was you know sort of in that near ace tier in the ADPs. And uh, I'll throw him out just to plug Ryan Bloomfield's uh, excellent breakdown of him three, four weeks ago in our fat to fluke spotlight section, where he basically just, you know, illustrated that the one and only problem with Rogers is that he has just completely lost the bite on his slider. And you know, there are still, he's still getting some strikeouts against bad teams, but it kind of reminds me of um, Dylan Bundy back in his Baltimore days where, you know, the strikeouts were there, but you know, if you're throwing a slider and your slider is somewhere between inconsistent and bad, you just end up getting tagged. And that's very much what's going on with Rogers. I mean, from his, you know, 80, from, from his ADP that I was, you know, in that would just within the top hundred, having a 546 ERA a whip over 155 and a four and nine record is just brutal. And if you're in one of those leagues where you can't get away from him due to rules about, you know, the guy's got to be, you know, with the minors are on the DL to get him out of your active lineup, et cetera, then it's even worse because the Marlins just keep running him out there to get pounded. Todd, who's your least valuable pitcher? Uh, I got two names that kind of go together. I'm going to go Lucas Giolito. And, you, you, Ray, you kind of alluded to with Rodgers in that, you know, leagues that you're stuck with, you know, Rod, you know, and a labor, for instance, you, you got to drop him. You can't just reserve him. Giolito, I mean, you're not going to want to – you're kind of forced due to draft capital to start him all the time. And he's shown some signs, but he just has not had a solid first half. Um, I'm going to be talking about him a little later, so we won't go into too much detail. But as far as, you know, between the roster construct, what it costs, because he's a guy that every year gets helium at the end when the pitcher helium where, you know, all right, he's a third or fourth rounder. But by the by the time the NFBC, for instance, rolls around TGFBI, he's a first or second rounder just because I got to get pitching. I got to get pitching. So based upon where you got him and what he's doing for you and the fact you're pretty much pot committed to have him in there, I'm going to go Giolito. I'll break the tie by taking Trevor Rogers as well. And you, uh, Ray has talked enough about the numbers and uh, the stats are just horrible. As we know, I looked at his PQS log and his best PQS score this year on a scale of zero to five is three. That's mediocre at best. And his average is 1.7, which is way below mediocre. And I think part of the trouble, when you see a situation like this, the question always jumps into your head. Is this a buy low opportunity? Can he fix this? And I noticed that he's been relying on his fastball about half the time and he's getting battered like a Liverpool haddock when he's throwing it, it giving up a 310 expected batting average, a 600, almost a 600 expected slugging. And his slider and changeup are both way better than that and he's still not throwing them and I don't understand it. So I'm going to be watching for a change in his pitch mix and until then I'm going to be wary of buying low on a $22 player who wasn't delivering $22 at the first half and may not be able to do it for the second half either. Uh, in keeping with the overall bleak tone of this segment, let's look ahead to the second half and our expected collapses in fantasy value. These are guys who are doing pretty well so far, but are going to collapse in the second half, or we expect that's a good possibility. Ray, uh, who do you think is going to collapse? Yeah, this is probably low-hanging fruit, but... And, you know, to be fair, the guys, there, there is some validity in what the guy is doing, but I, I just cannot convince myself to believe in John Birdie. So I'm going to put him on my collapse list. Uh, you know, we, coming into the season, I think we knew what John Birdie was, or we thought we knew. And sure, there's always been a little bit of life in the bat. He's had a couple of seasons of uh, double-digit home runs toward the end of the last decade, et cetera. Uh, you know, he wasn't a complete loss in the middle infield, but... Um, what he's done this year uh, really has just been astounding. And I am going to call for 
some significant reversion to the mean despite you know some nuggets of good news in his skills like a you know very good hard contact index uh an expected batting average but i i just can't buy uh the power rates that we're seeing and i have to expect that it's going to be some uh some real pullback there so uh i will take the under on a continued uh surprise season from john from um brandon jury you said all right jury said john, or birdie? yeah you said birdie first yeah oh i punched it no i was talking about drury the whole time <laughs> okay oh fair enough so brandon drury is your guy i looked at him too todd who's your second half collapse hitter um it's gonna be for a slightly different reason but i'm gonna go cj crone hmm. and it has to do with the schedule and the rockies have had 51 of their 93 games at home. And over the second, post the All-Star break, they're going to have 39 of their 69 on the road, only 30 at home. And sure, all Rocky splits are pronounced, but Crohn's are even more so. And I don't know if it's a collapse as much. Even if it just keeps the same numbers, but you flip it to the you know more, more road games, he's not going to hit as well. And I don't think he's going to keep the same pace either. So... Um, collapse might be a strong word, but I guess it's just a general warning that Colorado does not have as, you know, this, it could be a time to sell your Rockies. If you can get anything for them, Brendan Rogers, anybody, any of them. I'm going with Luis Arise of Minnesota. And I know that he's had a terrific season so far, but for fantasy purposes, it seems like all his value is tied up in that 338 batting average, which corrects for a lot of problems as far as roster building goes. He'll give a uh, give you a bit of a value top up, I think, from runs scored. But his path to maintaining these values has a lot of landmines in it. He's, as I said, below replacement value for power. There's no real promise of bags adding to his value uh, a lot. Despite his high on-base percentage, he just doesn't run. And opposing teams might stop trying to knock the banjo out of his hands with fastballs. His XBA on fastballs is almost 400, and his XBAs are way lower on breaking and off-speed pitches. I expect he's going to see a lot more of those. He may be able to handle them, but I think it's a possibility that he won't. He's hitting a lot of ground balls and his 35% hit rate. I don't know. It's kind of in line with his career. So I suppose we should expect that it'll continue, but it seems a little bit high. And if there's any downturn at all in his hitting luck, especially if it costs him the leadoff spot in Minnesota, it could be curtains for Arias's fantasy value. And having said all that, Arias has exceeded his 35% hit rate before. He's hit 320 or better in two of the last three seasons. And he has 100th percentile strikeout and whiff rates. It just seems to me like he's walking a, a tightrope of sorts. Let's go now to our second half collapses for pitchers. Todd, who's your choice for a second half pitcher collapse? So uh, this time I might have the low hanging fruit with John Birdie. I mean Tony Gonsolin. Um, <laughs> I don't. We don't even have to go very very much. We don't have to go deep. We just said you know eighty seven percent. You you folks call it strand rate. The rest of the world calls it left on base percent. Eighty seven percent is just silly. You know, good pitchers can get it to the 77, 78% range, league average of 72%. Uh, you know, just good fortune there. In a 197 Babbitt. Uh, again, can a pitcher control Babbitt? Maybe. Maybe I'll accept a 270, 280, and it's a little lower than normal. 197, nah. He's just, he's you know, he's pitched into some really good luck. He's, he's striking out more batters, so the landing may be a little softer than we originally thought. But, no, he's just, he's not a top 10 fantasy pitcher. My choice is Daniel Bard, the closer in Colorado. Todd, you mentioned him earlier, but to me it looks like he just walks too many hitters to have long-term success, especially in Colorado where walks preceding home runs is not a good look. Uh, his whip is barely over one this year, but it looks pretty suspicious to me. His hit rate's under 20%. His career rate's more like 30 That's also helping his strand rate or left-on-base rate or whatever they call it in China. I don't know, probably neither. Just normalizing his hit rate in the year to date raises his ERA to about 237 and his whip to 119. Still good numbers, but not like what he's been doing. And his ERA estimators, all of them are a run or more higher than where he's at right now. Pretty much all of his value comes from saves and so far a little too much luck in the equation for me to be confident that Bard keeps the role in Colorado. Uh, Ray Hoosier, collapsed pitcher. 
Gonsolin certainly is the your runaway choice here. I echo everything Todd said there, but let me spin it in a different direction and talk a little bit about somebody with the same profile who's um, Miles Mikolas, who's kind of doing the sort of poor man's Tony Gonsolin impersonation, you minus the gaudy win total. He's only seven and seven, but you know, with an ERA at two and a half and a whip under one, uh, you know, he's doing a lot of Gonsolin type stuff, getting by with uh, a poor strikeout rate in his case, but making a living off the uh, hit and strand rate fortunes. He's also making some good use of his, uh, his defense behind him there, that Cardinal defense, of course. But I think that the thing I want to highlight there is that I, I agree with Todd that Gonsolin may have a soft landing ahead. I get worried about Mikolas because he, because he doesn't have the foundation of strikeouts, you know, he's relying on a lot of balls in play and getting good luck on those balls in play. If that regresses, if his control slips a little bit, I, you know, he's so much of his value is tied up in the ratios in the whip, especially because he's not, he's not a plus in strikeouts and he's not a, hasn't been a plus in wins to date that I, I really think his entire value proposition can sort of crash back to something a lot more like the near 4.00, you know, league average starter that we thought he was coming into, coming into the season. And he may yet take a dive in that direction. Okay, guys, that brings us to the end of part two and the bad news is over. We'll be back in just a second with part three of our round table, where we talk about the best things that happened in the first half. Always like to leave them smiling. Todd Zola writes for Rotowire, ESPN, and Masters Ball, and appears regularly on Sirius XM. Ray Murphy is a co-general manager and writer at BaseballHQ.com, and they'll be back for part three, after I give you a quick reminder about the next edition of Baseball HQ Radio. It's coming up this Friday, a Friday full edition featuring an expert interview with Ian Kahn from The Athletic and The Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast, plus all our other usual great stuff, National and American League News Analysis, our Baseball HQ commentaries and ian Kahn next friday on another friday full edition of baseball hq radio and welcome back to baseball hq radio pd here time for part three of our all-star roundtable with ray murphy baseballhq.com and todd zola from rotowire espn masters ball and many other mountaintops in the fantasy baseball media range. Guys, let's get to our best of the year to date. Uh, We'll start this one with our second half rebounds. Ray, which hitter is your pick to click in the rest of the season after maybe a dodgy start? Yeah, one guy I really like for the rest of the season is Gavin Lux in LA. You know, it's hard to call his start a disappointment in that, you know, he's holding up a... 292 batting average, which is awfully nice and seems like a step forward for a you know 24 year old who's had sort of a lot of stops and starts in his career up till now. But it's been a pretty empty batting average. You know, we haven't seen much in the way of power or speed from him. And I'm kind of looking forward to that starting to change in the second half. You know, it's a lot of times that you know, we 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 see you know these nonlinear growth patterns or these young guys putting the put it kind of putting it all together sort of in stages. And I feel like Lux is kind of coming out of the let's make contact with the ball and play kind of stage and is starting to make more hard contact. That's really been the step forward we've seen this year. And now the last kind of piece of the puzzle I think is getting that hard contact off the ground and up in the air a little bit more. And that I think might be the last piece of the puzzle to seeing Potentially double-digit power, double-digit stolen bases. Uh, I, I don't necessarily think we'll see both of those in the second half, but I think you could see eight and eight, ten and eight, something like that, and then that be a launch pad for uh, you know a very different kind of profile next year and going forward as he goes into his prime years. So that's uh, somebody I'm excited about. Okay, so it's uh, John Birdie. I'm sorry, Gavin Lux for Ray. Hey. <laughs> The joke that keeps on giving. Uh, Todd Zola, who's your second half rebound hitter? I say we say bye-bye to the birdie joke. Anyway, um, Matt Chapman of Toronto. Um, The underlying numbers portend better expected stats, and I think they'll start to come the second half. 337 average fly ball distance on home runs. He should be hitting more home runs. Um, The BABIP is down. 
on ground balls, it's fine. His his I, I'm in the, I'm way into component Babbitt. His Babbitt on line drives and on fly balls is way low, and that's just I mean, is that a shift? No, it's just this is dumb luck. Ninety six percent percentile hard hit rate, ninety fifth percentile um, average exit velocity. I think uh, I think right now when we had a two twenty two or something in that in that range batting average, I think he's more two fifty two sixty hitter. I think we're going to see a solid second half from Matt Chapman. Well, solid 70 games from Chapman. And I agree with Todd. I think from now on, as far as players were making jokes about, we should watch the birdie. Uh, the easy pick here for me, I thought, would have been Juan Soto, the winner of the Home Run Derby, of course. He only earned $21 in the year to date, and I think people actually who had rostered him were expecting more. And I looked at Teoscar Hernandez and Javier Baez, who was my first-half flop, but their chase and miss stats are so awful, I just can't see them recovering and finding that easy path to value. So I'm going to go with Jonathan Scope of Detroit, who was a replacement-level $0 hitter in the year to date using Baseball HQ's values. He's batting barely over the Mendoza line, but his Baseball HQ expected batting average says he should be about 30 points higher, and his StatCast XBA is, 30, is 10 more points beyond that. And his hit rate's down to 25% from its usual 30-ish percent, despite his line drive rate going up. I know there's lots not to like here. Walk rate's low, barrel rate and barrels per plate appearance all low, but he's still close to elite as far as strikeout percentage. He's still eligible at first and second base, which ain't nothing as we go forward. I don't think it's going to be a massive rest of the season, but I think it could be double-digit home runs and a handful of bags and probably available for next to nothing. So let's move on to our second half rebound for pitchers. And let's start with Todd. Yeah, I mentioned I teased it before. Uh, Lucas Giolito is the guy uh, for both this one and the previous question as far as the least valuable pitcher, Giolito or Jose Barrios or Brios, deciding which one to go with. I like I'm, – I'm using Giolito in both. I think he has a better chance to rebound than Barrios does. Giolito has already switched up his pitch mix throwing uh, fewer fastballs and increased the changeup, which is what got him to elite status to begin with. And I don't know that I'm going to – yeah, well, I, I guess I am predicting it because he asked me the question, and that's where I'm going. I think that Giolito will have a much more Lucas, Lucas Giolito-type second half. Now, you mentioned Juan Soto. He's already turned it around. Giolito's already turned it around. He had a stinker against Detroit, but he had a pretty good – he's had a pretty good month. Um, so I just think, I think he'll continue along the lines and, um, what's done is done, but for the last, uh, month, a couple months of the season, I think you'll get what you expected with Giolito. I was tempted to go with uh, Jose Barrios as well, just based on his last three starts. They haven't been really terrific by PQS, uh, 3 2 3, but he's gone six or six plus innings in all three. And he struck out, I think, 26 guys over those 18 ish innings. So he seems to be getting back onto some kind of beam. I just don't know if he's going to be able to maintain it because he's been so frustratingly inconsistent this year. So the competition wasn't that great either, but. Right. Nothing you can do about that. You pitch Yuri facing, right? That's right. So I'm going to go out on a bit of a limb here. Yeri De Los Santos is the guy. He's minus $5 by baseball HQ valuation, but we're projecting $16 for the rest of the season. He's had terrific decimals this year. HQ projects him to fall significantly, probably a correction to a fairly high home run per fly ball rate and the resulting home run per nine. Maybe a little extravagant, but He's got another path to value, which I think is important, and that's the likelihood of replacing current Pittsburgh closer David Bednar, who's been struggling lately, first of all, and the subject of many trade rumors. So it seems like there's a, a forked path here, and both ways lead uh, Yeri De Los Santos into that closer role. If Bednar does straighten things out, he's much more attractive as a trade candidate, and he he leaves the team, and De Los Santos steps up. If Bednar continues to struggle... He loses the role on that basis, and Yeri De Los Santos steps in for that. Uh, best of all, I think De Los Santos is almost entirely unrostered in most leagues, probably rostered in only leagues, but I think you should look on your free agent wire and see if this guy's available because he's a pretty good pitcher and he's got a path to closing, which is always valuable, especially as we run down in the second half. Uh, Ray, who's your second half pitcher rebound? I 
always like to look for people who maybe have already shown that the rebound is underway. Uh, and then, you know, I know we talked earlier about staying away from injured guys too, but uh, Brandon Woodruff is somebody I just have so much confidence in for the second half right now. You know, he missed some time in May and June with a uh, ankle sprain, as I recall. So always nice when a pitcher is out with something that's not arm related. You have a little more confidence in him coming back. Uh, the interesting thing about him is the results have been, you know, sort of in line, but unexciting since he came back. Uh, you know, in particular in his last two starts against the Pirates and Giants, uh, he walked eight guys in tw- 12 innings, which is an awful lot for a guy who usually has pinpoint control, all of which may create what I think is the illusion that he's still not quite right or, and, or that he, you know, somebody might want to sell him at a discount, but I think the, the, I think the right move here is to buy in for the second half. Um, I think he's still shaking off the ankle sprain. I really like uh, his opportunity to get back and hang up a half season of ace level near first round value that he was, uh, you know, that, that he was fetching back in, March drafts. I think there's a, I think there's a run coming here. Okay. Let's move to our first half fantasy awards as the tension builds and I'll kick off a fantasy rookie of the year. I always do these most valuable things by adding year to date fantasy dollar value to profit from the draft values using NFBC's average auction values. I'm not going with the clear winner and the why will become apparent in a couple of categories. So I'll take Bobby Witt Jr. of Kansas City. 13 homers, 17 stolen bases so far. 254 BA isn't great, but it's playable. He's got a little bit higher uh, expected batting average at StatCast, a little bit lower at Baseball HQ. The 299 on-base percentage is a problem, I know, even in batting average leagues because it limits his stolen base opportunities, but he's in the 92nd percentile of max EV, 100th in sprint speed, He's still chasing and missing too much, but plate discipline is something I think is a skill that grows with experience for now. Pretty decent solid power speed source. He's earned $26 on a $20 average auction value. So a $6 profit, $32 combined value that tops all rookie hitters except the one I'm going to be talking about a little later and that either or both of you might be talking about now. Let's find out, Ray, who's your first half fantasy rookie of the year? Yeah, I kind of wanted to split my vote. I think I'm talking about the same two guys you are. Wit is certainly worthy, uh, but since you didn't mention him, I'll have to throw Julio Rodriguez's name in here. Uh, and I, you know, I, I won't steal the thunder of others who want to talk about Rodriguez as we go forward here. But uh, let me just throw on the pile that I think a decent amount of the difference between Rodriguez and Wit right now is team context, and that the Mariners have a decent lineup. Obviously they've been you know, red hot of weight and everything's going well in Seattle, but Witt is kind of dra- kind of dragging that Royals line along with them. Right. And if Witt was plugged into that Mariner lineup, his, you know, the gap between his year to date value uh, and that, those topping off runs and RBIs in particular that you're talking about might not exist. So I, I could certainly get behind your vote of Witt as um, you know, a particularly impressive performance given the uh, the headwinds he faces that Rodriguez is not necessarily facing. And Todd, uh, I'm going to go. And I had those. I had the names written down, but just to name another name out there and switch it to the other side of the ball, I'll go Kyle Wright. Mm-hmm. And just it's just so helpful in your pitching staff to get help from someone you really didn't expect to get help from. And, you know, are we going to see regression? Probably. But what's done is done. Kyle Wright has helped you a lot to this point. And so I'll, 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 you know, without calculating the numbers and the profit, I'll go with Kyle Wright as my fantasy rookie of the year. And you did, you know, you mentioned all the mentions. I think Jeremy Pena deserves a little bit of a hat tip um, as well for what he's done basically for free, giving you a really good shortstop. Um, at a position where you may have had to pay for one early, but still ended up with one anyway with Pena. I was also looking at Spencer Strider, but I don't know that yeah. uh, that he's eligible as a rookie. He did pitch a little bit last year, so I don't know. Next and next to last, our fantasy Cy Young. And we'll start with Ray. Which pitcher is number one on your chart? Uh 
I don't have any names here that we haven't talked about already. I had Gonsolin and Kyle Wright written down uh, since we slipped into Kyle Wright conversation. Uh, I'll go back to Gonsolin here and sort of echoes Todd's point. Sure, the regression's coming. Uh, there may be a soft landing there. The team context obviously remains good. I'm particularly worried about the workload and that I think we're already well beyond anything we've seen Gonsolin carry. So I, I wonder how much of a vacation he's going to get in the second half. We remember last year that the Dodgers kind of kept the pedal to the metal because their race with the Giants was so tight last year. But but uh, if they get a little more clear this year, then we've also, we can think back to other pennant races where uh, Kershaw and you know some of their other you know key names of any given year have gotten uh, you know significant workload reductions in the second half. I think that lies ahead for Gonsolin. Uh, but all of that said, what's done is what what's done is done, and I I knock on wood have a hard time imagining Gonsolin uh, being so bad that he undoes much of the profit he's already banked this year. So I'll count him as the fantasy side. Todd, I got to go with Sugar Shane. I mean, I didn't need I didn't need any other numbers other than he was my top ranked pitcher um, for, through 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 this through the break. As far as putting him in my little black box, I'm a little surprised. Um, I thought someone else or others may be a little ahead of him. Don't know, you know, similar argument or not so much argument, but just points with the innings. Don't know what Tampa's going to do down the stretch because he's already going to be really close to last year's numbers. But what Sugar Shane has done. Uh, to date is just silly. And having having watched him a few times, I mean, he doesn't look like he's as good as he is. You know, you don't you watch the game and you don't think you're seeing a seven inning, nine strikeout, two hitter. Then you look up and you are. He's just it's just such it's so fun to watch. And uh, I he's my Saiyan. I mean, I know he a fairly high draft pick, especially if you you know some industry people are way on him. But I think the profit, everything else. I'm going to go with the McClanahan. And to no surprise, I had two candidates, uh, honorable mention to Tony Gonsolin for the reasons that have been cited, but I'm going with Shane McClanahan of Tampa. He's earned $38 a year to date by Baseball HQ, and that's actually a, about a $15 profit. So he's up around uh, the mid-50s or mid-60s for a combined value, I think, if you work it out, it's $61, which is about 5 bucks ahead of Gonsolin. But he's just been, as Todd said, he's just been extraordinary. The decimals are out of this world, uh, 147 strikeouts in 110 innings. And we don't like to give credit for wins, and nobody likes wins as a category, but they are a category, and he has 10 of them, so you, you have to give him credit for that. All of his StatCast metrics are off the charts, except, interestingly, barrel rate, which for some reason is middle of the pack. And while neither HQ nor StatCast expected ERA supports the 171 he's rung up so far, they're both at 230 or under, so it's not like he's going to explode to a four or four and a half or whatever. I know some naysayers are going to be wondering about the Rays' shenanigans to optimize their pitching, but even they seem to realize that putting Shane McClanahan out there on the mound and letting him pitch is the right tack, and, and this is... This hinges on uh, something that uh, Ray said a moment ago about the Dodgers and whether they're going to keep pitching Gonsolin. I don't know what the ins and outs of it are. Maybe you guys do, but isn't there a quite a useful reward for finishing with a very good win-loss record in your league as far as the uh, playoff structure goes in the first round? Yeah, they're not going to get there though. I think they're too far. They would have to win. They would have to reel in the Yankees, and they're thirteen games out. The reward, the reward is for the top two division winners to get the get the first round by, and that's very clearly, but barring some kind of collapse, going to be the Yankees and Astros. I was talking about Gonsolin and the Dodgers. Do the Dodgers oh, have an right. incentive to keep playing hard to get that? Uh, no, they're they're ten games ahead of the Brewers, so probably not. Okay, then let's uh, finish up our fantasy most valuable hitter, and we'll start with Todd Zola. Um, I I kind of alluded to my reason earlier. It's a different player, but I'm going to go Dansby Swanson. And then, you know, he's top top 10. I didn't, do, I didn't crunch the numbers like you did, PD, but he is top 10 overall. Um, it's at a position where you may have invested early. Swanson was kind of that cutoff where, I don't get Swanson, I'm waiting. And you didn't want to wait. Shortstop was top-heavy, but it wasn't so great back at the, at the back end. So you went with Swanson, you ended up 
with an, a top shortstop. We'll, get, we'll see what happens the rest of the season. Ended up with a top shortstop and didn't have to pay for it. And it's also just, you know, I, when I pick these players, I try to think of an ancillary reason. Next year, when we're downgrading players because of where they're going to hit in the batting order, just think of Dansby Swanson. Because he was going to hit sixth or seventh. He's going to lose runs, lose RBI. It took an injury to Albies, maybe. Although Albies was hitting cleanup. I don't know that it mattered. Uh, Swanson's hitting second and, and, and getting those extra counting stats. So uh, draft the talent, not necessarily the spot in the batting order. I had three honorable mentions. Uh, Dansby Swanson was one of them. Uh, Aaron Judge obviously has 144 runs plus RBIs already. And Paul Goldschmidt, who's having a terrific rebound oh, yeah. year, all over $50 in combined value plus profit. But since I mentioned this earlier in our rookie discussion, it'll be no surprise that my most valuable hitter is a rookie, and no surprise, it's Julio Rodriguez of Seattle. A combined $63 of combined value and... I know he has some warts. He walks less than he should. He strikes out more than a superstar can probably afford to at 28% because he chases too often and misses too often. But man, when he gets the bat on the ball, as we saw on Monday night, it's really something. 90th percentile plus in all the StatCast hard hit metrics. More than half of his balls in play count as hard hit, which is 95 miles an hour plus. And when he gets on, the excitement's just starting. He's running in fully 20% of his stolen base opportunities, succeeding more than 80% of the time, so we can expect a lot more running, especially if Seattle's fighting for a playoff spot. The aggressiveness, I think, sometimes backfires. He's got thrown out on the bases 13 times, caught stealings, pickoffs, and thrown out trying to get an extra base on balls in play, but put that as mistaken enthusiasm and... T- expected to get a little tempered by experience. I think Julio Rodriguez might well be in the running for the real MVP this year. Uh, Ray, who's your MVP hitter? Come on, we have to make the joke one more time. This is where I was going to use John Birdie. It's John Birdie, of course. Um, everything we talked about, with, Todd talked about with Miles Straw earlier and the team construction uh, damage that he caused even beyond his stat line, the inverse is true of Birdie. Uh, the standings impact that he's had to the people who picked him up on the uh, on the basis of his 28 um, miraculous stolen bases, even if he doesn't get another one, has been enormous for the people who have him, whether it was a uh, round 30-plus pick in a draft Champions League or whether you fabbed him in May and reaped the benefits there. Um, I know, Todd, you've done this study in the past. I've done it not in several years, where you could take the NFBC standings and rosters and essentially calculate an average standings position for every player, like the X number of leagues, the guy who had John Birdie finished, you know, um, X spots above average or whatever. That number is going to be enormous for Birdie this year. I'm almost certain he's going to be a uh, a, a top 20 guy in that category just because of the uh, the unanticipated benefit that he flipped the stolen bases category and produced 10 or 12 tangible standings gains point for gain point for the people who uh, who were fortunate enough to roster him up for a uh, for a fab buck or a very late draft pick. Well, guys, this has been great. Uh, they call it a round table, I think, after King Arthur and the Knights and stuff like that. And you guys certainly brought your swords and lances to the game today. Uh, thanks again, Todd Zola. Great to be here, PD. Looking forward to a solid uh, rest of the season. And then uh, not too long after that first pitch, right? First pitch Arizona is coming up. Uh, Ray, how's the registration? Uh, registrations are hot and we've, uh, we're really just starting to hit the promotional drum. It's been on, uh, on our site and on social media for the last week. And, uh, we'll start doing some of the email blasts, uh, during the break this week to, uh, to hammer it even harder. But the interest is strong as I think I predicted on last week's show PD. And, uh, we are super excited to get out to the desert, but we have, uh, we have this little, thing called the second half or the last uh, 41.2% of those of the, of the season to go first. So we'll, uh, we won't wish that away. Let's enjoy the, what's still to come. And then we'll all meet up and talk about it in Arizona. All right, Ray. Thanks very much. I'll talk to you again Friday. Absolutely. Thanks, PD.
Todd Zola writes for Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire, appears regularly on SiriusXM, and is on more podcasts than Joe Rogan, including this one. You can follow him on Twitter, at Todd Zola, all one word. Ray Murphy is the co-general manager and a writer at BaseballHQ.com. He covers the American League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio every Friday. And you can follow Ray on Twitter, at RayHQ. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, July the 19th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 28 of the 2022 Fantasy Baseball season, our special All-Star Break Roundtable Edition. Of course, I want to thank our guest experts, Todd Zola from Rotowire, ESPN, Masters Ball, and SiriusXM, and Ray Murphy from BaseballHQ.com. Both of these guys are as good as it gets for fantasy baseball, and it's a pleasure and an honor to have them on the show. I'm Patrick Davitt, the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. And remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. And take a second to go to wherever you catch your podcasts. Leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners, and new listeners help us keep the podcast growing and going. If your podgetter of choice doesn't find Baseball HQ Radio, let us know about that or anything else on your mind by emailing bhqradio at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Friday with another Friday Full Edition featuring an expert interview with Ian Kahn from The Athletic and The Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast, plus all the usual great stuff, National and American League news, and our Baseball HQ commentaries, plus Ian Kahn on next Friday's Full Edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. Talk with you again on Friday, and for now, so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.